Welcome, B2B startups, change-ups, scale-ups, and grown-ups. This is the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. Let's do this. Our guest today is Derek Skoletsky. He is the CEO at Sherlock. He has over a decade of experience marketing SaaS products to business customers. He was the chief customer officer at Tracker. Uh, he was the CEO at Kissmetrics and uh, most recently founded Sherlock, which is a product engagement scoring solution that helps SaaS businesses track utilization. Um, and I'm excited to have him on the podcast today. Derek, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate now, it. you started as chief customer officer at Tracker, the online influencer engagement program. So maybe start by telling us a little bit about what you learned from your five years there. Yeah, a lot of what I learned that was really about company building because we started that with, you know, just three of us and built that. Um, so there's a lot of lessons in, you know, startups and company building. But um, but it also was a new application in a really new novel market. Influencer marketing today sounds very obvious, um, but back then it was not obvious at all. Um, we had to, you know, selling that product and that offering back in the day, we really had to educate people on why they should care about people online and in social media. Um, that was kind of the first part of our pitch was why you should care about this. Um, so, you know, starting early in a new novel market, there's a ton of challenges and, you know, stress with doing that. So both building a company from scratch, but also, you know, how do you build something in a brand new market and educate them uh, in a way that you can sustain a business? It's all about timing. I had a buddy who launched a company called Popcast, which was YouTube four years earlier. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, they raised some venture capital and they got it off the ground. But, you know, video hadn't really kicked in on mobile yet. And the timing was just a little bit off. But, I mean, I saw it. It was the same thing. Yep. Exactly. That's the risk of those bleeding edge markets. Yeah. Yeah. So if you could stick it out. Um, and kind of get through that that you know chasm, if you will, you'll be in a good spot uh, to kind of lead the market. Uh, but if you can't, <laughs> try again four years later, I guess. So as 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 the chief customer officer uh, at Tracker, what was your mandate? Well, it's really you know it was a startup, so a little of everything really. But um, but eventually in that role, I really was building out the sales and CS kind of go to market. Um, teams. I um, I actually had a relationship. I have a relationship with uh, one of the one of the early investors in Tracker, mm. um, Robbie Van Adamant. Oh yeah, yep. Yeah, so we go way back from his company before that that he was CEO of Ecast. Yep. Which was a company that basically you know ripped the CD changer out of jukeboxes. And put a CPU in there. Right. Yep. No, we know Robbie very well. He was definitely one of our early investors. He was one of the early ones to, you know, really see the market, to be honest. So, so after that, you went to Kissmetrics post-acquisition. And uh, you started up there as product and customer success uh, person. And then two and a half years later, you were CEO. So I... I got to Kissmetrics through an acquisition. I left Tracker and started another company that was acquired by Kissmetrics. 
Um, so I got there kind of early in, in that company's evolution. Gizmetrics uh, bought that for the technology to kind of help them shift positioning a bit. Um, so Kissmetrics, when I got there, was not in an awesome spot. Um, they'd kind of lost product market fit a bit. So they were really looking to kind of figure out how to reposition themselves in the market. And, you know, the company that I had had some technology that was going to help with that. Um, and then when I came in, um, you know, given my skill sets and some of the executive needs they had, um, they asked me to lead both product and CS teams. Um, so that was pretty unique opportunity. Uh, it was really great to bring those two often disparate teams together uh, with, you know, shared leadership. Um, and I really, really enjoyed that. It was, you know, product teams try and stay as best they can in touch with the customers and customer needs and feedback, and they do the best they can traditionally. Um, but it really is different when you're when you're responsible for that customer success and responsible for, for product it really makes those roles, um, really elevates the, the, uh, the collaboration between those two roles. So, so, you know, through all this experience, obviously, and when I get to Sherlock and talk about, about that, but through all this experience, I mean, you're basically, you know, you're, you started at Tracker doing B2B digital marketing for a bleeding edge product, making the market for the product, while the product exists and then you went over to Kissmetrics, similar experience any sort of you know 40,000 you know feet looking down big picture forest through trees observation about uh b2b digital marketing you can share from that experience yeah well that's a great question um you know i will say so tracker was traditionally enterprise tracker we sold at enterprises big deals traditional sales led model um, eventually, we evolved to that. You know, Kissmetrics was pretty much the opposite. Um, really broad, you know, product-led, sign up, try it for yourself, you know, huge volumes at top of funnel. Um, so kind of very different challenges. So to kind of group, you know, one thing I would say is people trying to group kind of SaaS marketing together in one big bucket. And I will say there's very big differences and nuances between the go-to-market models and how you need to market, you know, sell, support, and everything down the line um, between those two models. So I do, I will say there's, you know, it's really important to kind of make a distinction between how you're approaching the market and what is your go-to-market model uh, and how you, how you strategize your marketing for that. Um, and, and since you worked in both those markets, I mean, what are those differences? Well, one is volume. Um, so with a traditional sales-led model and an enterprise price point, Obviously, you need a lot less volume to reach, you know, a significant revenue number. Um, but there's sales cycle time, right? So you're trading, you know, you're you're exchanging and trading off kind of volume uh, with this long sales cycle. Um, so that affects everything downstream, you know, all the way down to product. Um, with a product-led motion, you're leading with product in a in a different way. Uh, so you're getting people to touch your product before they actually use it. So there's a different approach to convincing that user to actually give you a shot. There's really, you know, you can do it in a way that's touchless, right? You really do it through marketing. So marketing is really bearing the, the, the brunt of that communication and messaging and showing the value. Where in the enterprise side, it's really the sales and what's happening in those conversations between a salesperson and the buyer where that trust and value is being communicated. 
when, when you think about um, selling software uh, that's in the cloud, SaaS software, versus software that's on-premise with enterprise, do you think the future is all SaaS, or is there always still going to be some component, some on-prem component? Um, I think there'll always be, I don't think there'll never be no on-prem component. I certainly would not invest in that space. So I don't think that's a growing market on-prem. SaaS, you know, I, I forgot the stat I saw, but SaaS, SaaS penetration is still relatively small for the entire market. And so I think the majority will go SaaS. I think you'll see a hybrid of like on-prem SaaS, so private clouds, um, I think will be a thing and we're seeing some some movement in that space but you know the vast majority will be of software usage will be SaaS, you know in the next five ten years and just just for those people that you know maybe don't know i mean i don't you know SaaS stands it's s-a-a-s it's an acronym and it stands for software as a service and it basically means that instead of you know buying software that you install on your computer you're basically leasing access uh, over a browser, over, over the internet, to a seat on a platform that is maintained by a company. And that's, that's, so that's what SaaS means. For this quarter, um, I'm excited to say the B2B uh, Lead Gen podcast is focusing almost exclusively on tech startups and SaaS. And so we're really psyched to have you as our first guest for the Q4 season. Um, Based on what you've witnessed, what does the next generation of marketing leaders look like? In, in the kind of technology space, I'm assuming here. Um, so it seems obvious to say, but there'll be, there'll be data-based markers, right? They'll, they'll definitely be way more comfortable with data um, and be more dependent on data to make, not only make decisions, but actually, you know, drive and target messaging based on data. Um, so you'll see the next generation of marketers be much more comfortable than, uh, with data, uh, not only be able to talk about it, be able to use it than the, than the past uh, kind of cohort of marketers. I also think um, you'll see marketers with, be more aggressive and more flexible. Um, you'll, you'll see marketers be able to switch strategies and switch you know, test different ideas and different things more quickly and more rapidly than they've traditionally had to. Uh, you know, changing a website was a once a three year uh, kind of exercise for companies traditionally. Um, now you, you should be testing stuff every week and seeing how it flies uh, and seeing what effect it'll have. So, you know, that, that kind of, call it aggressiveness, call it um, flexibility, call it being, just being more nimble. Uh, and be able to make quicker decisions and try and test things in, in a much more rapid iteration phase. You know, we, we talk so much about marketing and marketing strategy, but a lot of companies that have really popped in the SaaS space didn't really have any sort of external marketing. They were sort of, the marketing was sort of built into the product. And uh, I remember back in the early days, you know, Zuckerberg used to call it social by design was sort of his pitch. But now we're sort of talking about building marketing into the program. You think about products like Zoom, where, and by the way, you know, just the stat I saw from Mary Meeker in, I think it was in April, just after the pandemic broke, was that uh, Zoom went from uh, 10 million to 200 million active daily users 
in a month's time. Uh, what an explosion. Remarkable. But if you think about how a product like that grows, right, I send you an invite. If you don't have an account, you have to get an account in order to attend my meeting. And that is sort of sometimes referred to as product-led growth. And that's something you, you're involved with, right, this idea of product-led growth. Yeah, so product-led growth um, has a bit of a murky definition, but I, and I think they're kind of uh, a spectrum of product-led growth. Um, product, what I would refer to as pure product-led growth um, is when the product is actually a channel, right? So your example, uh, Calendly is an example, Typeform is an example, uh, you know, SurveyMonkey back in the day was kind of an example, where you can actually generate brand new users from someone using the product. You use Zoom, you share it with me. I'd never heard of Zoom. All of a sudden I have a Zoom account and now I'm thinking about getting, you know, getting a paid version of Zoom, right? So the product itself, just by someone using the product, you're generating leads from it, right? Um, and you know, there's a, you, you could have a viral factor attached to just product usage and generating new leads, right? So that's pure product-led growth. With the, using the product itself generates leads, meaning the product is a channel. And so smart marketers will measure how many leads per month am I generating just from usage of the product from existing customers, right? Um, and to your point, in that case, if that is your model, you have to be really savvy about how you're marketing through the product, right? That becomes a really important, it'll become your most important channel in that type of product. Um, so that's like pure product-led growth. The product itself is driving growth. Um, then there's like product, people call product like growth kind of any SaaS company that has a free version, whether that's a free trial or we're a freemium. So they're still referring to that as kind of product led growth. And I think it's fair to do that. If you're giving people the opportunity to try the product for free, try it before they buy it. I think the product itself is, is a marketing vehicle. Um, so you have to, if, they, if you're letting them try it, you have to be able to communicate the value and get them activated while they're using the product for free. Um, so that is definitely, it's not traditionally seen as a marketing challenge, but I absolutely think that is a marketing challenge. Any um, companies uh, in the SaaS space specifically that you think are doing either a really good or bad job of product-led growth? Oh, there's so many, there's so many good examples. I mean, I'm part of a few communities for product-led growth with you know, products that are doing great, all over the place. I mean, Slack obviously is a crazy product-led growth. You know, let's story. talk about Slack for a minute. Um, I'm a shareholder. I'm a believer. I've been using them for two years. I've been to their user conferences, and I saw their stat, their stock tanked about fifty percent just last week. I mean, oh, I think I it's a buying opportunity, definitely. Why, why haven't they popped? Like, I know Stuart Butterfield tweeted out, I think last month, that they went from ten million to twelve point. 5 million active daily users as a result of the pandemic. How come they didn't take off like Zoom? Well, it's hard to argue that Slack didn't pop. I mean, they came on the scene, I don't know, four years ago, five years ago, and they're a public company now. So um, huge explosive growth with Slack. Yeah. Why they didn't pop like Zoom is because, you know, Zoom in this pandemic have pop, has popped because it's the requirement for work and education and for school, right? You have to, everybody has to be on 
some kind of video conference right now. But you know, there's other ones. School. There's Citrix. There's there's other guys out there. Mm. They don't seem to have got. They don't seem to have been able to grow as much from it as Zoom. Why Zoom? Why did they? Why did they inherit the uh, the mantle? It's a great question. You should, I mean, I think there's an awesome case study to be done on Zoom. I mean, he was, the founder of Zoom was at Cisco with WebEx, and he wanted an easier, lower touch, kind of less friction web, pro, you know, uh, web video product. Um, and they didn't want to do it. Um, so part of it was, you know, just the price point that they set. I mean, there's a free, there's a freemium version of Zoom. Right, those other products don't have freemium versions. You know, they're more selling into the enterprise with a traditional sales process and price point. So, not only did he take the price point way down, but he also simplified greatly. You know, the uh, one's ability to actually get set up and use the product. Um, and so, I'm not an expert on on how Zoom did it, um, but there's awesome case study in there somewhere. Any, uh, you want to plug any of the communities that you're part of in case someone wants to get more involved and learn more about product-led growth? Yeah, uh, Wes, Wes Bush uh, runs a product-led growth community. Um, I think his website is product. Yeah, I, think he, I think he has a book called Product-Led Growth that's out. Yep, yep, I'm in that book. Um, cool. But yes, product-led growth is, pro so it's productled.com. Okay. Uh, and you can see all his content there as well as um, get a link to his community from there. And that's, that's a Slack. That's about, a Slack. Let's talk for a minute about product-led marketing. Mm -hmm. So is there such a thing? And if so, what is it? Yes, I, I do think there's such a thing. Uh, so as we referred to before, I, I think if you're in a marketer in a product-led business, you have to be a product-led marketer, which means you have to think about the product experience and the customer experience with the product and how do you market during that experience to not only get that initial, that customer, that user to actually see value in the product and become hooked, if you will, uh, but also to get that user to spread usage of that product, get that existing user to spread usage of that product. Um, and you got to think through every kind of little detailed step of that uh, for that user, for the user on the other end, the non-user on the other end of that messaging uh, and experience and what they see and what they read and how they, how they experience it. So, you know, yes. And a marketer also, product-led marketer, marketer also has to be, the scope of that job I think is expanded. Traditional marketers, their job is kind of done once sales takes it, right? You get a product or a, a sales qualified lead and marketing kind of wipes their hand clean, wipes their hands clean and moves on. Um, where in a product-led model, the marketer's role expands and they have to really think through that the entire customer experience as well as how does the product itself generate more leads for us. So it's, it's, it's organic, it's, un, it's unpaid. This is about uh, owned and shared and earned media. It's really, there's, is there a paid component to product-led marketing? Well, there's certainly, there's certainly in a product-led company, in a product-led SaaS company, there's still certainly acquisition, you know, more traditional acquisition that you have to do. So yeah, there's still a paid component to that. I mean, you need to get people 
to the site instead of getting them to talk to your salesperson, you need to get them to sign up for your product, but you still have to get them to the site uh, first to do that. It's interesting. I, um, we, we did a show last year uh, with uh, uh, one of the guys from Golan, which is one of the top uh, PR agencies, and they actually launched a business unit called CXPR. And they were kind of looking at the same thing. How do we, as, a, as an agency, help our clients usher customers who are involved in freemium products to a conversion? You know, how can we do that through communication? So sort of, I guess, CXPR is sort of the same way of saying product-led marketing. I guess I'm discovering for this conversation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. If you're in a product-led business, to me, it's marketing. <laughs> but, but there is a, you know, I guess you could say there's a nuance to marketing a product-led, uh, in a product-led business that you could call product-led marketing. So I use a product called LucidChart. Mm -hmm. And uh, Lucidchart has like all these templates that are created by experts. And the, often there's even like a little YouTube video explaining the template before you customize it. And there's this really cool one on the SaaS sales cycle. And it's sort of two reverse funnels. It talks about, you know, awareness and, and consideration and acquisition. And then the funnel opens up on the other side and gets into customer success. Because, you know, if you acquire them and they churn, then you don't grow your business. And that's what it gets into this whole side of customer success. So talk to us a little bit about customer success. What is customer success in the context of the SaaS business? Yeah, well, so it's one of my pet peeves. Customer success is actually a department in a SaaS business. You have the customer success department, it's a role, it's a function. Uh, and I think it's unfortunately misnamed um, because I think Customer success is everybody's job. Um, so it's too easy because we name this department customer success to kind of uh, look to customer failure as a failure of that department, uh, which I do not think is the case. I always say like blaming, you know, which means a lot of customer success departments are measured on churn is kind of their metric. And I always say blaming customers, a customer success team for churn is like blaming a waiter for a bad meal. They didn't cook the meal. They didn't design the menu. They didn't pick the location. They have a, a impact take a on the Tell experience. us what is churn in the context of SaaS. So churn is uh, cancellation. Cancel, cancel when a customer cancels. <laughs> um, so they sign up, they start paying 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, whatever it might be, and then they cancel their subscription. Um, so most SaaS businesses today are, are still have monthly some combination of monthly and annual options for paying. So that's, that's where kind of the SaaS model really innovated. Traditional software, you bought it for three, five, 10 years you paid uh, to get that software. Whereas SaaS software as a service is you're paying monthly like your electric bill um, and you can cancel at any time. So churn right. is a measure of those cancels. When you were uh, building up Tracker and you were pitching investors, what was the role of monthly recurring revenue in your pitch? And what were the investors looking at to see whether or not they thought you were a good bet? Well, yeah, they would look at growth in, well, so they would look at growth in net MRR, net monthly recurring revenue. And net monthly recurring revenue is new deals signed, new revenue, minus churn, minus the revenue that went away. 
um, plus expansion if any existing accounts expanded, right? So that's net M new MRR on a monthly basis. So you could be filling the top of that, that new revenue with a bunch of new customers. But if, you know, 10% of your customers are churning on a monthly basis, that means you need to fill, you know, fill that bucket with 10% new customers plus beyond that to get any kind of growth, right? So that churn, your monthly churn rate in a SaaS business is, you know, a super, super important, important metric for your future growth, ability to grow. And it's something investors want to know about. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. You, you will not get money, you know, and any investors during due diligence is going to dig into churn pretty. And so your new quickly. company, right? Sherlock is kind of focused on that, right? It's, it's a product that helps SaaS companies circumvent churn. Well, yeah, but, but it's actually extended into kind of the sales cycle as well, because with a product that we serve mostly product led SaaS businesses and we help them understand the engagement of their users that are using the product um, at the account level, at the user level. Uh, and this is important, not only just to understand your existing users and are they using the product? Is their engagement dropping? Should I be worried about them? Is their engagement increasing? Is there an expansion opportunity there? Um, but because in a product led model, you have a bunch of accounts that are using the product for free before they convert, you need to understand the engagement level of those free accounts as well in order to be able to convert them into paid accounts. So it really is the full kind of life cycle. So when I, um, I was with a, I, I launched a, um, a learning company, a online learning company. And one of the things that we always did before we went in to resell a deal is we would ask, hey, what's the utilization in the learning management system so that we can go to the customer and say, hey, did you know it's getting used this much? So is that kind of what your platform does? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, well, yeah, you can ask that question and get that answer in, in Sherlock, but also uh, it also creates a signaling system for you as the operator, right? We can now tell you when there's problems. Uh, we can tell you when there's opportunities. We can tell you when that free account is, you know, on their way to activation and worthy of a conversation with a salesperson. Um, so yeah, so it's really about, you know, that product engagement, how they're using and interacting with that product is the lifeblood of a SaaS business. So you want a signaling system built on top of that. So you understand where to focus your energies as a team. And does Sherlock a standalone system or does it integrate with the CRM? It, we integrate with the CRM. Yep. So you would actually give me flags in my CRM of who I should contact based on different utilization milestones? Param yeah, milestones or parameters, yep, yep. Uh-huh, and, and so how, how does it work? How do you set it up? So you have to, you have to be tracking your product data. Um, so there's a company called segment.com, uh, which is a great company where you can push all your product data to segment, and then you could push it from there to a bunch of different tools. So we integrate with Segment. So you can, if you're a Segment user, you can just start pushing your data to Sherlock through Segment. Um, if not, you can send it to us directly via our own API. Um, but it starts with that product data. You need to be able to send that product data to us. And then you give uh, uh, some sort of visualization tool. What's, what's your secret sauce? 
Yeah, well, we give you a methodology for what we call translating that data into some simple metrics that are actionable. So the problem has traditionally in the space has been there's a ton of product data. You have a product, you have a bunch of users, that data, you have a, you're generating a ton of data about your product. And so CRMs and other tools can't handle that data. They're just not built to handle that kind of data in that way, in that structure, in that volume. So how do you translate it? How do you tell Sherlock, you basically configure Sherlock, you tell Sherlock what product usage is important, what events are important, um, and then we create engagement scores. We translate all that and we calculate uh, that into a simple engagement score uh, between zero and 100, and we track that over time. So we can tell you what the engagement level of every user and every account is and how that has changed in the last seven days, in the last 30 days, in the last 90 days. So that's kind of the core to us is we translate that data into the simple metric. We also measure uh, activation rate. So of your new accounts, how far are they along in becoming activated with the product? Um, so those become very simple metrics. Then those metrics are pushed into your CRM. So you can do whatever you want in your CRM in terms of creating signals there based on those, those metrics. And I imagine, you know, you, you spent a lot of time looking at, you know, tools like Google Analytics and Google Search Console and Hotjar. Any sort of high level advice you might be able to give to maybe a newbie who's just sort of getting their feet wet with those tools and doesn't really know what they should be measuring. What should, what should they be looking for? Yeah, so, so those tools are good at uh, kind of your website mark measurement. Um, they're not great at, at really helping you understand product usage. Um, so, you know, generally you want to look at, you know, what are the top 20 things that a person can do, a user can do with my product that I should know about when they do it, <laughs> right? What are our 20 core kind of, they call them events uh, is the technical term for them, but what are the actions that they're taking in the product? that are really core to engaging with this product. If they're doing this, I know they're using the product. If they're not doing this, I know they're not using the product. So that's really, you know, kind of a place to start. Um, you could track all kinds of stuff. You could have hundreds of things tracked to the product if you want, but I usually just say, start with like 20, 10, 20 maybe. What are the key actions that people are doing that would indicate they're engaging and getting value from your product? Start tracking that. If you think back to, you know, your pre-Sherlock days, when you were looking at, you know, web analytics and sort of regular marketing data, uh, what, you know, any advice from, from that experience that you can give marketers who maybe aren't necessarily measuring their products yet, but are measuring uh, web usage or you know, email usage, any tips you can give for sort of how to, what they should be looking for, what they should be uh, optimizing for? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, when you're measuring kind of top of funnel and kind of marketing stuff, I think, I think what people are traditionally doing is, is, is pretty good. I will say, you know, in this day and age, you really have to be doing more experimenting in that area uh, and measuring. So measuring one thing over time, it's fine. It tells you something, but it doesn't really tell you much until you, you have a counter uh, test to that. Right, so you need to test something else to be able to tell whether or not what you're doing is working. Um, so I will say, you know, the more you can test and have examples of things that you can compare against each other, uh, the more learning you're gonna be able to do uh, from what you're doing on the marketing side. 
and the better decisions you're going to be able to make. So final question, and this is sort of a far out question, but I'm interested to hear what you have to say. You know, we're living through really a very peculiar time politically. And uh, a lot of the old rules that we were taught as marketers and as business people don't seem to really apply anymore. Um, I was speaking to a PhD of physics from MIT, Joe Rom, on our sister podcast, The Earned Media Hour. And this is a guy who got a PhD in physics from MIT and then quit science for communications because he realized that people don't believe facts, they believe stories. And that essentially, you know, we respond with emotions and then rationalize with intellect. We make our decision based on the story and how we feel, and then we convince ourselves based on the facts that we're right. Um, you know, what, what's your thought on that? I mean, for, we, we sort of got into this world of, you know, science and, um, you know, the age of enlightenment, and it's not about rhetoric, it's about facts. But now we're coming back sort of to full circle to this sort of age of the story and rhetoric and, and, and persuasion again. Um, you know, what, if anything, does it say to you as a business leader? Oof, that's deep. Um, well, you know, being a business, you know, as a business leader, there are a bunch of different takes on that, right? So there's, you know, how do we present ourselves to the market and, and compete in the market? There's how do you manage a team and, and support that team? Um, how do you think about shareholder value? Um, and maybe differently in this day and age, uh, it's 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 a real question. I think I think I think we have as a society a trust issue, no doubt about it. Um, and and I don't know how to I don't know how to fix it to be honest. Um, you know, when we back in tracker days, we always used to say like, what is being said isn't really the important thing. It's who's saying it, right? So there's we push. For for better or worse, we place um, so much trust in a person, in the person or the people that are saying those things, right? And that can be good and it can be bad, right? Because if if people like Donald Trump have built a trust with a certain audience, then whatever he says is believed to be true and believed to be the case, right? Um, and that is kind of dangerous right kind of dangerous because we don't we don't have a we, we're kind of out out to see you and with what what is real and what is fact and, and it's, it's a tough situation yeah for listeners if you want to go deeper into into i think you know what what he's talking about there's this guy uh, dan kahan who teaches i think at yale he's a he's an attorney who teaches um what he calls cultural cognition and his thesis is basically that the messenger is more important than the message, you know, in this age right. of tribes. And it right. really is fascinating stuff, particularly if you look at, uh, you know, what's happening with social media. There's this great new movie now on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. Yeah, really that unlike, yeah. What, what was un what's unlike this documentary from any others is the level of access they got. I mean, they've got senior and mid-level managers from Google and Twitter and Facebook on the record about how they're using technology to try to deplete users of their attention, I guess is one way to say it. Well, it's interesting because, you know, 
you could actually use that to refute what I just said, which is it's the person that matters, right? The, who's saying it is really what matters more, matters more than what is said. And we're in an age now where maybe the platform itself matters more, is, supersedes any of those, right? Uh, what the platform, what the algorithm uh, serves to you becomes the truth, right? Regardless of the actual facts. Um, so that, that might be, you know, maybe we're at this next level, which is a kind of a scarier level, which is the platform itself uh, is, is the source of truth. Is the platform responsible or, or is, it like the, think, is it like the phone company? The phone, you can't blame the phone company for what's said on the phone. You know, you can't blame the printer for what people use it to print. How about the, how about the network and the platform? Can you blame the platform? Yeah, I'm, I'm of the camp that yes, you absolutely can, can. right? The, the, the telephone doesn't have an algorithm to determine what is said and what is, and when it's said and how it's said, right? Uh, the well, increasingly it's diverting incoming calls to spam if they're spam. So there is a filter there. Yeah, yeah, but you, I think you're talking about kind of more traditional, the telephone as a network and as a platform, right? Um, yes, there is, you know, modern, you know, modern, Telephone telephone systems are are getting filter applying filters right, or having some semblance of of filtering stuff out. That is true, but that's still not nearly uh, as as impactful and powerful and scary as as the social platforms yeah. and the algorithms that drive them. So yes, they they are algorithms are opinionated, um, and so yes, I think you can absolutely blame the platform. My uh, my son was. Um homeschooling and uh, the teacher is leading uh, the course on her son's iPad and he tells me that during as she's teaching a little notification comes up on the top of the screen uh, to her son which says scout misses you notification to try to right, right, right. increase utilization there it is right yeah, yeah. there right right so yes the, the algorithms have have are opinionated and they're serving serving the truth and creating the truth for you but there's also the the systems that are built to continuously keep you engaged and going back and back and back and becoming addicted to these platforms so you know they're absolutely responsible for the the addictive nature of them of their platforms right and i i would argue there's the debate about whether or not they're responsible for what for the algorithms and how the machine is is serving up content i'm of the belief that yes they are responsible for that. Derek, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. If people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, you can find me on uh, LinkedIn or you can email me at Derek, D-E-R-E-K at SherlockScore.com. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for listening. This is Eric Schwartzman for the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. See you next time.